Watson. Anybody get, everybody get their, uh, their sheet of scripture verses by any chance? Okay. That's two weeks in a row. How many weeks does it take to make a habit? I don't know what it was, but hopefully it's two. <laughs> hopefully it's two weeks. Um, it wasn't that hard to do. I just need to, I just need to get better at doing that because I, I tend to speak a little bit faster once I get rolling on a subject. And uh, a few of you were gone last week. And hope there's, there's quite a few gone today as well. Hopefully they can listen to the message online and uh, hear kind of part two. And last week I talked about the subject. Better watch my time here because this could go long today, just so you know, Brian. Sorry. Just give me one of these if it's getting too long, but, uh, but don't. I think this is a good message. Uh, you're already doing it, yeah. Um, I talked about the subject of circumcision. Physical circumcision, which is found uh, in the Old Testament, and it's also found in the New Testament, and we're going to talk a little bit of how it's found in the New Testament, but this concept of physical circumcision, and people say, why would you, why would you even start discussing some Old Testament concepts? Why would you discuss physical circumcision? And I'm going to address that today a little bit as the importance of it. Uh, last week, I talked about Abraham in Genesis 17. And he was commanded by God to circumcise his uh, sons on the eighth day. We talked about the science fact about how vitamin K and prothrombin, they joined together and it's a blood coagulation and babies would bleed to death. That's why they're given a vitamin K shot on the, uh, early on in their, their birth uh, because vitamin K isn't produced in the body until the third day and it peaks on day eight along with prothrombin. Um, I talked about how Moses was uh, going to be killed, or Moses' son was going to be killed in Exodus chapter 4 because he had not yet circumcised his son as he was on his way to meet Pharaoh to release the Israelites from the bondage of Egypt. Um, we talked about the Levitical law, how the Levitical law required that any sojourner, anybody born in the house, or any alien or stranger that was part of the nation of Israel were required to be physically circumcised. We talked about how David and Goliath in the battle, and David was calling Goliath this uncircumcised Philistine, and it was not a compliment. Um, We talked about how Stephen, the martyr in Acts chapter 6 and 7, the first martyr that we have uh, in the the Bible, uh, as far as the New Testament, a Christian, um, how he was challenging the Pharisees with uncircumcised hearts and ears. And we also discussed a little bit about Paul and the rest of the Pharisees, and actually had a little empathy for Paul and the rest of the Pharisees because they had had over almost 2,000 years or over 2,000 years of teaching from the time of Abraham all the way through um, the New Covenant when Jesus came, and they were practicing circumcision with all of their firstborn. Jesus himself was circumcised in the temple on the eighth day. It was a practice that they uh, obeyed because it was a command of God. And how we could have empathy for the Pharisees because now there's introduced into their world a new religion where uh, the Gentiles who are uncircumcised were entering into this religion founded by this man named Jesus. And uh, in Acts chapter 15, they were saying you need to be circumcised. And so we can understand oftentimes why, uh, why there is a requirement there. But this morning... Um, I don't want to just jump ahead on the notes. Does that, does that make sense why the Pharisees would have been requiring uh, circumcision? 
I mean, it was something that had been in their, it had been in their religion for over 2,000 years. And anytime someone was uncircumcised, they were considered unclean and out of covenant with God. And so, yes, they naturally have saying, if we're going to be in this new covenant, this relationship with God, physical circumcision must take place. So this morning, we need to understand uh, something about the physical and the spiritual. And I've often asked, why did God institute this covenant of circumcision? I can't answer that. I mean, I, I can't. God's ways are higher than, than my ways. Uh, I am going to do, I uh, appreciate the raise of a hand. That was rhetorical. Uh, but I'm at the end of my, I'm going to go ahead and go to my conclusion, and I'll go back to the intro, okay? The conclusion, I say, any questions, fire away. That's when, open it up. I would love to, I'd love to dis- discuss some of the questions that will arise from this sermon, because this is one of those subjects that I think needs to be uh, talked about on a regular basis. So um, uh, I think that uh, looking at this physical versus spiritual, why did God institute circumcision in the first place? Well, the, the, the question uh, is warrants the answer that God's ways are way up here and my ways are way down here. However, I can look at Scripture and I can understand a few things and I can reason from Scripture uh, what God did and when He did it and the reason behind it as far as you're out of covenant with God. So there's a lot of questions we can answer, and one of the questions I want to answer from a conversation I had last week with someone after the message is what was the purpose of this law? What was the purpose of the entirety of the Old Testament law? And I wrote here that the physical law leads us to the spiritual in Jesus. If you go to Galatians chapter 3, and we see in Galatians chapter 3, Uh, Paul is addressing a major issue with some of the Judaizers, some of the legalistic uh, that are saying you need to observe these certain things, one of them being circumcision. And he's setting up this this comment that he makes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 23 and 24. He says, before this faith came, this faith in Jesus, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law, here's the answer to the question, so the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. So the question is, why the law? What was the purpose of all these laws that we find in the Old Testament and the book of Leviticus and Numbers? What was the purpose of them? One of the purposes that it says right here is the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, to lead us to the Savior of the world. I'm going to give you an example um, of that. In the book of Deuteronomy... In the Old Testament law, the Pentateuch, the Torah, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, there's a passage here that says very clearly something that we're not allowed to do or that the Jews that were under the Mosaic law were not allowed to do. In Deuteronomy 22, it's on your notes, in verse 10, it says, Do not plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together. Do not wear clothes of wool and linen woven together. Those two verses, do not plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together. Do not wear clothes of wool and linen together. So we have the physical law given to the nation of Israel. Do not do these two things. Years ago, I was, I was first a Christian, and I said, hey, I'm going to a Bible study. It was on a Super Bowl Sunday, and we went for the first half, but we had a study at 6 o'clock with a group of people. And they said, hey, where are you going? I said, well, my wife and I are going to a Bible study. And he goes, oh, you're going to go study that book that says you can't wear wool and linen together. And I went... I guess, yeah, if it says it. I didn't know it said that, but that's what we're going to go study. 
And I tried to figure out why did God make it very clear, do not um, wear clothes of wool and linen woven together. Now, there may be some physical reasons for that, and I've heard from a friend of mine who studied Judaism and studied you know, the, the nature of materials, that, yeah, there is some, there is some uh, reasoning behind that. But I believe the spiritual aspect of that reasoning is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and this is for you young people who are going to start uh, looking for a soulmate in the next 2 to 15, 20 years, whatever it is, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, the Bible says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? So we have this physical example of do not uh, wear woven materials together, do not plow with an, an ox and a donkey together, and then we can go to a, a spiritual side of it, where he's saying, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. And that's why my understanding of the Old Testament and New Testament is the physical leads us into an understanding of the spiritual with Jesus. That's my understanding of Scripture, and that's how I, I interpret a lot of the Scriptures in the Old Testament. Did they happen? Absolutely, they happened. But why did they happen? They happened to lead us to Christ. Romans 3 says, uh, it is through the law that we become conscious of sin. It is through the law that we understand what shortcomings are, what missing the mark, which is what the word sin means, harmatia in the Greek, it means to miss the mark. That is the purpose of the law. So the law is important. For us to understand the Old Testament law, it's very, very important. And here's why it's important. Without understanding the law, do we really understand what freedom in Christ is? Teresa's shaking his head, no, I agree with you. Without understanding the law, we can't understand, truly understand what freedom in Christ is. Um, do we understand what sin is unless we understand what it means to be conscious of sin? We don't even know what sin is until we look and understand the law and we see that the book of Exodus says this is a sin, or this is a sin, or Leviticus, this is a sin, and now I know what sin is because the law says this is a sin against God. And so it is through the law we become conscious of sin, and it's understanding the law that I think we can understand the depths of what Jesus did. Let me give you another example, the sacrificial system. I got bored one weekend and I said, I wonder how much blood was spilled in the sacrificial system in the Jewish, uh, in the temple when they would give the sacrifice annually. I wonder how much, and I did a study on it, and I, I obviously, I guesstimated a year old, how many quarts of blood are in a year old bull, how many quarts of blood are in a year old calf or in a goat. I tried to guesstimate and I, I read through Take this many and sacrifice for this. Take this many and sacrifice for this. Take this many and sacrifice for this. And I did the math, and it was Olympic-sized swimming pools of blood annually. It was so much blood that was spilled for atonement of sin in the Old Testament that when we get to the book of Hebrews, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, when we get to Hebrews chapter 10, we'll actually start in verse 9.22. Hebrews 9.22 says, In fact, the law, talking about the Old Covenant, the Old Testament law, requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so the law required that there had to be a, a cleansing with blood and that the shedding of blood, there was a shedding of blood required for the forgiveness of of sins. And then the next passage I want to look at is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, says, but those sacrifices are an annual reminder. And so they were an atonement for sin, 
but they had to be made year after year after year after year. For as long as, the, I think, 1491 B.C. is when the law was starting to get implemented, I believe. I, I go back and look, but you get the point. It's 1,500 years of sacrificial system that was going on, and it was happening year after year, blood and blood and blood. And Hebrews is telling us that these things were a reminder of sins, that people would say, oh, the Jewish people said, I sinned against God. I need to sacrifice these animals in order to have an atonement for sin, but it's going to happen again next year. And so we understand that every single year this happens, and then a little bit later on it says, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first covenant to establish the second. And by that covenant, by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It's once for all. And so we don't need to have this constant sacrifice of Jesus year after year, but the old covenant was a reminder, hey, you guys have sinned. And Jesus comes along and says, I am the Lamb of God. I am the eternal sacrifice. And so for me to fully grasp the power of that sacrifice, I felt like I needed to understand the importance and the necessity and the quantity of sacrifices that took place before Jesus came. Does that make sense? For me to understand why is the Old Testament important, and that's why. The same can be said about this concept of circumcision. This concept of circumcision is found from Genesis 17 all the way through the Old Testament. And it's found into the New Testament. And I was talking about it last week. We went through all those passages last week about Abraham and Moses and the Israelites and the, and the prophecy in Jeremiah. And we, we, we looked at how Stephen was martyred for talking about circumcision of the heart and ears. We looked at how the, the Jews were requiring the Gentiles to be circumcised early on in the church. And so... We had to understand the physical of circumcision in the Old Testament to understand the spiritual of circumcision in the New Testament. And I can tell you, for most people, this is a deep subject. Because, and I'm going to show you an example, and I talked about it with my brother Austin, who I'm discovering has a gift of understanding spiritual things led by the Spirit of God. And it's not common in a lot of people. Just some questions that I've been asking him, and he answers. I'm like, wow, I can't believe you got that. I mean, just reading it, studying, and I think God speaks to him. But there's something that we were looking at together that it's a very confusing issue for a lot of people, and they mess it up at the very beginning, which completely thwarts their, the, the rest of their understanding of Scripture. Now, um, this concept that we're going to talk about is circumcision of the heart. And I wrote here, without understanding the absolute necessity of circumcision of the flesh, flesh, how do you understand the necessity of circumcision of the heart? Now, we've already kind of established, but we're going to really establish it right here in a minute with Galatians chapter 5, that the circumcision of the flesh, the physical fleshly circumcision, we don't need to put a PowerPoint up there. You can understand what we're talking about. It's the fleshly circumcision. In Galatians chapter 5, we see Paul addressing this issue, but we know that he had to address this issue because early on in the church, early on in the church, the Jews, and we looked at this last week, 
the Jews, some of the Jews that came down from Judea was, were glad that the Gentiles had been saved, but they said they're going to force them to obey the law of Moses and, and to obey the law of circumcision. And so these Gentiles were coming into this religion uh, of Jesus Christ, and they're saying, you need to obey the law of Moses and the law of circumcision. They have this big debate, and it goes on and on, and Paul and Peter, and they start talking, and then finally James, they explain what happens, and then James says, it is my decision, therefore, we should not require the Gentiles to do this, but to absorb, observe these four things. And they lay down a law for the Gentiles. Circumcision was not one of those laws. But, you know, we can study Acts 15 one day, but at the end it was James the Lord's brother, which is another deep subject about who had the authority in the early church. At that point it wasn't Peter, it was James the Lord's brother, which is Jewish history that would get passed down from one brother to the next if that younger brother passed away. Is that correct, brother? You're shaking your head yes. So James is the one that makes the announcement, this is the things we're going to require of the Gentiles. Now, later on in Galatians, we have the same thing happening, and they're requiring in the church of Galatia, they're saying, if you're going to be part of this church, you have to observe the physical nature of circumcision, just like 2,000 years of history has told us. So I can, I can empathize with these people going, I want you to be right with God, so you need to be physically circumcised. Well, Paul takes a very aggressive stance on this, on this issue. And he says in Galatians chapter 5, Mark, in verse 2, Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith express expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty wherever or whoever he may be. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, who is he talking about right now, those agitators? He's talking about the people who are saying you must be circumcised in order to be right with God, physically circumcised. That's who he's talking about. So Paul goes from, I am from the tribe of Benjamin, legalistic, righteous, faultless, I studied it under the meal of Gamaliel, he says at another point. But then he also says, circumcised on the eighth day. He put, early on in a letter, he put some credence on the fact that he was obedient to the law of being circumcised on the eighth day. But now he's saying, if you let yourself be circumcised, you have been ekpikto, fallen away from grace. That's what that word fallen means. It means to... Fallen means to become inefficient, 
If you're allowing yourself to be circumcised, you have fallen away. As for those agitators who are saying you must do this, listen to what he says. I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. That word emasculate means amputate. Amputate. Okay? I have cut my finger many times. I have cut it with a grinder. I've cut it with a sawzall. I've cut it with a chop saw a little bit. I have cut my finger. I've beat it with a hammer and peeled off skin. I cut it with a pipe when I was swinging on things, thinking I was Tarzan when I was 10, and I cut the tip all the way, and I had to get it back on with egg white. Well, that's another one of science miracles we'll talk about at some point. Okay? But I've never amputated it. It's still here. I've cut it. I've circumcised it, cut it, but I've never amputated it. I've never emasculated it. Is that, am I making clear what he's saying? Paul is getting very aggressive to these people saying, you need to... Be circumcised, he's saying, I wish those agitators would go the way and emasculate themselves. So, Paul obviously has, has gone from requiring it to saying that's not what the concept of circumcision is. That was a physical thing that was required in the Old Covenant. But we need to talk about the spiritual side of it is what Paul is addressing. So we're going to look at some passages that talk about this spiritual circumcision that the scriptures refer to. Um, let's go to, and surprisingly, some of them are in the Old Testament. In fact, most of them are in the Old Testament. They are prophetic. Okay, go to Jeremiah chapter 4. In Jeremiah chapter 4, there's just a few tidbits. You, ha you have them in your uh, notes, so you can go look and do the 20-20 rule in context, 20 before, 20 after. Look at the idea of who's writing to who and why are they writing. But if you look at verse 3, it says, This is what the Lord says to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem. Break up, Jeremiah 4, 3 now, uh, Break up your unplowed ground and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord Circumcise your hearts, you men of Judah and people of Jerusalem, or my wrath will break out and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. We can read these Old Testament passages and understand that the Pharisees knew these passages. And so when Stephen says they had uncircumcised hearts and ears, he's basically saying, or my wrath will break out and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. They understood the Old Testament scriptures. And he's, he, he's, when he says you have uncircumcised hearts and ears, Jeremiah is saying, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, circumcise your hearts. And so there is now a heart issue that God is worried about, not a physical flesh issue that he's prophesying about. The next passage in Jeremiah 9, 25, if you flip forward four or five pages, in verse 25 it says, okay, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all who are circumcised only in the flesh, referring to the physical circumcision, Egypt, Judah, Edom, Ammon, Moab, and all who live in the desert in distant places. For all these nations are really uncircumcised, and even the whole house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 30. You guys know I flip fast, and that's okay. That's why I'm starting to print out notes. Deuteronomy 30, 
verse 6 says, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants, so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. Deuteronomy chapter 30, uh, I just read that one, sorry. Deuteronomy chapter 10, go back a few passages. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, in verse 16, it says, verse 14, to the Lord your God belongs the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord has set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, because, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. So those are some Old Testament passages that are saying you need to circumcise your hearts. You need to let the Lord, your God, circumcise your hearts. In Romans chapter 2, now we go forward to the New Covenant. This is after Jesus ascends into heaven. Paul is writing a church to the saints in Rome. And he says in the end of the second chapter in Romans chapter 2, he says, verse 25, a uh, circumcision, talking about, talking about physical circumcision, circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code in circumcision, are lawbreakers. A man is not a Jew if he is only one inwardly, nor is circumcision. Now he's getting onto this, this Roman road, this idea. He's explaining the circumcision deal. He says, a man is a, uh, I'm sorry, a man is not a Jew if he is only one in, uh, outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. And so now Paul, again, after he calls them agitators, now he's saying that circumcision that we're referring to in the New Covenant is something that is inwardly, it is done by the Spirit, it is not done by the written code, the physical that's talked about for 2,000 years and practiced for 2,000 years by the Jews. This idea of Spiritual circumcision is, is throughout Scripture. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. It's, it's in the beginning of the church. It's addressed you know, years, decades after Jesus ascends into heaven. This idea, this concept of spiritual circumcision of the heart. Now a question that I have, which you may think is off topic, but it's not. I'm just setting you up so you need to answer it, is does language that specifies past, present, and future matter? Does it matter? Does the tense of the context, as far as the definition, verb tenses, tell us how an action relates to the flow of time? Does that matter? I'm not just talking about context, but the verb tense of something, does it matter in understanding what the scripture is trying to tell us? I hear a lot of, see a lot of people shaking, nodding. Thanks, honey. I always say that, shake, shaking. No, it's nodding and shaking, nodding their head, yes. Uh, let me give you an example. 
the burnt wallpaper peeling from the walls indicated that a fire had broken out sometime overnight. Had there been a fire? Is that past, present, or future? What was the indicator? The peeling wallpaper. The peeling wallpaper was the indicator that there had been a fire. I know this seems very basic to some. It took me about 30 minutes to put it together in my mind, but it's probably basic to every one of you. But the past tense matters is that the indicator that there had been a fire was the burnt wallpaper. Okay? You guys all get that in the front row here? Thank you, Titus. Give me the, the thumbs up. I want to read a passage, and we're going to dissect a passage that talks about circumcision of the heart. And the reason we're going to look at it is because I read something recently that completely ignored the context in order to prove a point, a talking point. That's what they did. And it is a religious commentary that flip-flopped the meaning of a verse in order to fit a narrative. And I, I read it, and I read it, and I read it, and I caught it, and I went, oh my goodness, this religious website that is preaching Jesus flip-flopped the meaning of this word to put one thing in front of another, which completely changes the context of the verse. Now, you think this is something we are, need to split hairs over? I do, because we are warned 23 out of 27 letters in the New Testament and many, many books in the Old Testament to watch out for false teaching. Is false teaching meaning they're going to have devil's horns? No, false teaching is it's not true. It doesn't fit the context. And anybody that's honest with Scripture and honest with their relationship with God needs to look at this and go, what is the writer trying to get across here? Based on this, that's the important part. So we're going to go over to this Colossians passage. Colossians chapter, and I, I promise you, I am confident enough in my understanding of Scripture that the fire away and the questions after that I'm going to open up to ask, ask them. If I say, hmm, that's a good one, that stumped me, I will say, hmm, that's a good one, that stumped me, and I'll go back and study it, because I don't care if I'm right or wrong based on me. I care if whether or not I'm understanding this book accurately, because I have one person I'm going to answer to, and none of you are it. God's the only one that I've got to answer to when it comes to this stuff. So in Colossians chapter 2, Paul is writing to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ, and he's talking about thanksgiving of Jesus and the supremacy of Christ and how he worked for the church. And then he gets into this, just as you receive Christ as, as Lord, uh, continue to live in him. He gets, and he's warning against, watch out that no one takes you captive in verse 8. And that word captive, it means, uh, you can imagine, I wrote here to rouse, but that was a different word. But I have, it, I have it underlined, but I don't have the definition, so forget I said anything. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. 
For in Christ, again, we've done this study before, and I encourage you to study this passage, all the blessings that happen when we're in Christ and what the Scriptures say of how to get in Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word made His flesh, uh, and the Word uh, made His dwelling among us. Uh, let me see, John 1.14. My brain went too fast there, sorry. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and made His, made his dwelling among us, 1.14. Sorry, I, I went step ahead of my mind there. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him, I have, this, I have this circled, in him you were also circumcised. In Christ you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature. Is he talking about the physical fleshly circumcision? No. He, he, he clarifies it when he says not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. Comma. Okay? Comma. This is not the end of a sentence. It continues. Remember I said a little bit earlier, does language that specifies past, present, future matter? Yes, it does. I'm going to read that again. In him, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God. So where is my faith placed? In God. It's not in the water. It's not in the person baptizing you. It's not even in you. It is faith in the power of God who raised Him from the dead. Now before I dissect this passage a little more, I've got to share with you a passage that some of you have heard me talk about which is so powerful when you look at the physical in the Old Testament and the spiritual in the New Testament. Okay? So the physical in the Old Testament, we have a flood. Anybody know who was the builder of the boat? Noah. Very good. Noah built this boat, and how many people get on the boat? Eight. Four men, four women. They get on the boat, and the rest of the world, they drown. God floods the earth. He wipes the earth of all of the sin, and it says the earth had become corrupt because the people had corrupted their ways. It was all evil all the time. He was sad that he made men, so he says, I'm going to cleanse the earth one time, and I'm going to send a rainbow to remind you that I will never flood the earth again. Is that story talked about in the New Testament at all? A couple of times. Jesus refers to it, but also Peter refers to it in 1 Peter chapter 3 in referencing baptism. So you have the physical of a flood in the Old Testament, and it's referenced in 1 Peter chapter 3 in the New Testament referencing baptism. Now, my question is, does Colossians chapter 2 have a physical story in the Old Testament that kind of ties in with the concept in the timeline that he's writing to the church at Colossus? When he says, in him you were circumcised, uh, 
with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God. I promise you that as a point, and I'm going to do my absolute best to, to circle it and for you to understand it when I'm done. In, jo- in Joshua chapter 4, okay, anybody know what Joshua is in the Hebrew? Rick, how do you say it? Yeshua, okay? What is Jesus? Yeshua, okay. So we have Joshua chapter 4. Moses is not allowed into the promised land. That promised land was given to the nation of Israel by God. He says, all nations will be blessed through you. I'm going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. So they wander for how many years through the wilderness? 40. In that 40 years, it says that they were not circumcised and they did not observe the Passover. So God promised that they would have the promised land. He makes them wander for 40 years for the number of days they spent complaining, or the number of days they spent observing the land. It says, you've complained, I'm going to make you sit and wander for 40 years. So they wander for 40 years. They come up to the Jordan River, and in the meantime, all of these men that are part of the nation of Israel had not been circumcised along the way. As they wandered, none of them had been circumcised. Did you know that? It says that in Joshua 3 and 4. None of them had been circumcised along the way. And so they come up to the Jordan River. We don't need to go there, but we can. I have it in my notes. You guys can look at it later on. And they go, they go up to the Jordan River, and it says several times, and I'm just going to clarify. I'm going to read a couple of quick verses. It says, uh, Joshua 4, 1, 7, 19. Okay. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua. Okay, so the whole nation crossed the Jordan River. In verse 7, it says, Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So they crossed the Jordan. They crossed the Jordan. And then again in 19, verse 23, it says, On the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from the camp and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the twelve stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their fathers, what do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground, for the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did uh, did to the Jordan just what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. So they crossed over the Jordan River, and then the next passage in Joshua chapter 5, the entire nation of Israel, the Ark of the Covenant, Joshua, Moses is dead at this point, Joshua, Yeshua, takes them through the Jordan River to what? The promised land. The land that God said, I'm going to give to you, It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's yours. You're going to win battles. It's the awesome place I'm going to give you. They cross the Jordan. They're on the other side of the Jordan. They go through the the waters on dry ground. And what does Yeshua do next? He circumcises them. He circumcises the nation of Israel at Gilgal after they crossed Jordan. The Jordan River. The question I had is why in the world would God allow the nation of Israel while they were out of covenant with God 
to go to the promised land. Are you tracking with me here? Are you following? Am I losing you? God allowed the nation of Israel into the promised land while being out of covenant with God. That cannot be denied. Because it's right there in Scripture. It says it clearly. They hadn't observed the Passover, and they hadn't been circumcised, and yet God said, go ahead and cross the Jordan River, and afterward, Joshua, uh, it says, at that time the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeoth Harloth. Now go to verse 9. This is another one that was like, whoa! After they crossed the Jordan River, and after, after Yeshua circumcised them, this is what the Lord said to Joshua. In verse 9, today, not yesterday, not the day you crossed over, not before you crossed over, but today, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Forty years after they left. Forty years of wandering. And God said, today. Not 20 years ago. Not 40 years ago. Not right after you crossed over the Jordan River. But after He circumcised their flesh, He said, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt. That's important. That reproach. Maybe an English person here, what does reproach mean? Someone say it. You have it on the tip of your tongue, Rachel. Huh? Huh? Guilt. Bondage. Guilt. I've rolled it away today. What's physical is spiritual. You go to the context of Colossians chapter 2 and you look at the tense verb in verse 11 it says in him, in Christ you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, not the physical circumcision, but with the circumcision done by Yeshua. Past tense, having been buried with Him in baptism and raised with Him through your faith. That is an exact parallel of Joshua 4 and 5. Exact. They crossed through the waters, and they were circumcised. And brothers and sisters, I'm telling you right now, Paul is teaching the church at Coloss. They crossed through the waters, and their hearts are circumcised. They crossed through the waters, and their hearts are circumcised by Jesus Christ. And our faith is placed in God. It is our faith and the power of of God. I read a 
commentary recently, and I sent it to Austin. And I said, Austin, do me a favor. I want you to find, I used the word false teaching. I want you to find the false teaching in this passage, in this commentary. And I quote, I, I, I cut and paste it. I'm, I'm going to read it to you. The question is, is baptism the new covenant equivalent of circumcision? Is baptism the new covenant equivalent to circumcision? This was their answer. Colossians 2, 11 and 12 refers to this type of spiritual circumcision. In him, and then they quote the verse, in him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. This circumcision does not involve the cutting of the body. It is a cutting away of our old nature. Very true. It is a spiritual act and refers to nothing less than salvation affected by the Holy Spirit. Very true. Baptism, mentioned in verse 12, does not replace circumcision. It follows circumcision. Baptism mentioned in verse 12 does not replace circumcision. It follows circumcision. And it is clearly a spiritual circumcision that is meant. Baptism, therefore, is a sign of inward spiritual circumcision. If anybody wants to take a picture of this or you want to just go Google that, you'll get a clear understanding. I could read it 15 more times, but it took me 20 to read it on site before I could actually understand what they were saying. But they say here, Baptism does not replace circumcision. It follows circumcision. So I hand this and I, I, I said, Brenda, we're laying in bed and I'm reading it. And I said, read this. Read this. And I sent Austin a text and I said, find the teaching in here. Show me where this is. Show me if this is wrong or what's the false teaching in it. And he writes this one page saying, you can't read my writing. I was like, I can read my dad's writing. I can read your writing. So he gives it to me. He starts reading it to me. And he says, they, they switched what happens first. In that past, in, in, the, in the explanation of gotquestions.org, they switched it. They, they, re, they removed this idea of having been buried with him in baptism, which is past tense. So the scripture in Colossians 2, if you look at it, of any English grammatical person can look at this and say that baptism happens and circumcision of the heart happens. Just like in Joshua 5, going through the water happens and then circumcision of the flesh happens. It's an exact parallel. And this gotquestions.org, it switches the time frame of this. People are like, you are splitting hairs, Nate. Why do you care? What's the big deal? It doesn't matter. And I would say it does matter. And here's why it matters. If baptism... If circumcision of the heart, which happens at baptism, is merely outward and physical as a sign of things that have already happened, it is not an eternally necessary issue. I'm going to say that again. If baptism is an outward and physical sign of something that has already taken place, meaning you were circumcised in the heart by the Spirit, and then you're baptized to show others that you have been circumcised in the heart by the Spirit, if that's the case, 
then baptism is not an eternally necessary issue. However, if baptism is the point when God says, you have come through the waters of baptism, I will circumcise your heart, and you can avoid the punishment in Jeremiah 4, and you can avoid, and you, and you, you, will, you get the promises in Deuteronomy 30. If that is the case, then verb tense matters. Circumcision of the heart matters. Baptism matters. That's why this is such a big deal. That's why this is such a big deal. There is false teaching out there. We're getting ready to do a, a men's study on, on, on uh, translations of the Bible. We're getting ready to do it. And so why do some translations change things of God's original intent? Why do commentaries who are extremely popular change the verb tense of something because it's leading people away from the truth? And I know that's not easy to hear. The gentleman that just raised his hand that I said he's, he was sitting in the back just when he came in, which I kind of thought's odd, first time in here, and I say, you know, I ask a question, he's like, I can answer it. Eh, that was rhetorical. I'll do it at the end. But he left. He left. You guys didn't see him. He said about, he left about eight minutes ago. It doesn't feel good to some people. Maybe he had another reason for leaving. My guess is, I'm not going to ask that guy a bunch of questions. I don't want to, maybe, I don't know, but I can, assume, I can assume as much. I'm okay with being wrong, but I'm not okay with misinterpreting Scripture in very clear Scripture verb tenses to prove a point. That's dishonest. And when you're dishonest with God, that's a problem. As far as I'm concerned, and I think as far as God's concerned. Is this too deep? Is this too hard of a teaching? Thank you, brother. We got enough people out there tickling your ears, man. We got enough people telling you what you want to hear. They're out there. You can find them. You can find them next Sunday. You can find them tonight. You can find them tomorrow. They're all over the place. But come to a church that will say, you know what, I know this isn't a popular issue, and I know that 90% of churches will not agree with what I just taught. I know that, and I'm still going to teach it. Because there's a reason why the story of Joshua 4 and 5 is in there. And the reason why Paul says, having been, past tense, buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God. It is the Spirit of God that circumcises our heart in the waters of baptism. After we come out of baptism, just like they came out of the Jordan River, he circumcises our heart. Now, when I said, any questions, fire away, I meant it. I totally meant it. I think we, don't, we do not have a divisive group. We don't have a divisive person in this building, I don't feel like. I'm looking around, I don't see a single one. I see people that want to know what the Bible says. And I'm one of them. If there is a, if there is a, 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 a comment, if there is a now or afterwards, I don't care when, hey, I don't agree with that, and here's why, Okay. Okay. I, I mean, I, it, was, it was Christy Saad, we were talking about the, uh, Matt Saad's wife, we had a Bible study with them, this was like 15 years ago, and we were talking about Acts chapter 10, and it was about Cornelius, and it was how Cornelius received the Holy Spirit while they were speaking to them, and afterwards, Peter said, uh, be baptized, every one of you. And then later on, Peter is before the Jewish brethren, and he's explaining to 
the Jewish brethren, how they received the Holy Spirit, just like they did at the beginning in Acts chapter 2. And she's, she's, we're going through this thing, and she says, well, yeah. Oh, and my question was, because Peter at the end of that, of that monologue with the Jewish brethren, he says, who was I to think that I could oppose God? And he was referencing in my mind to when he ordered them to be baptized. Because they had already received the Holy Spirit miraculously. And immediately afterwards, he says, you and your baptized, you and your whole house will be baptized. So when he's explaining to everyone that we're challenging him about it, why did you do this? Why did you do that? He says, well, so who was I to think that I could oppose God? And they said, well, they, they, they rejoiced and said, good, that God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. I said, see, the only way that Peter could have opposed God was by not baptizing the Gentiles. That's the only way that I can see in Scripture that that's what he's talking about. And she thought about it, and she says, well, could they have been talking about the fact that he crossed over the threshold of the Gentiles when uh, he had the vision? And I go, yeah. Do you remember that, Brenda? I said, yeah, that, i got to rethink that. That's a, good po- that's, a, that's a possibility. I still believe what I believe now, but I spent weeks studying the the way it was written and who he was writing to and all that stuff, and I go, no, that, but that was a wonderful point to bring up. So when somebody brings up a point, I don't get offended. I'm not a very smart guy. Ask my wife and kids and my parents. I, can, I mean, this stuff I can, I can figure out. It makes sense to me, but you ask me other things, and I, I get confused easily. <laughs> so ask me questions on this. I'm happy to, happy to answer them. So that's my message on circumcision of the heart. Uh, I'm going to finish up talking unless you have questions because it's been about 45 minutes, maybe a little longer. It goes quick when I start preaching on subject. Yes. Yep. I don't believe physical circumcision is still required. Um, if further on in Galatians chapter 2, in the same context of this subject of circumcising of the heart during baptism, uh, it says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. Reference Romans 6, 8. Because Romans 6 talks about being freed from sin, being made alive with Christ through baptism as well. But then he says, he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And so my understanding is when we are baptized into Christ and we're raised with Christ and our hearts are circumcised, that is the point for me individually that he took it away and he nailed all of those regulations that were opposed to my life because it even says in Romans 6 that if we died to the law, we are freed from the law. So that it says you are no longer under Law, but under grace in Romans 6.14. You're no longer under law. So when I give my life to Jesus, and, I, and, and we can talk about repentance because that is a major aspect of baptism. It's not just water. There's a baptism of repentance that Mark talks about in Mark 1.4. Okay? So there's this concept that once I am baptized into Christ, the physical regulations that were opposed to me and that brought along death because the law brings death. Those are nailed to the cross. It's over. Does that answer your question? I, 
Physical circumcision is not a requirement in the New Covenant, but spiritual circumcision is. The rules? Love it. I like where you're going. Good question. One of the deepest physical and physical baptism and physical, this is how I understand it, it, brother, that physical circumcision is equivalent to physical baptism and spiritual circumcision is equivalent to spiritual baptism. Does that make sense? Rick's question? I'm going to answer it in a way that I think I'm going to answer your question, that I think you'll understand as well. I have in my notes here at the very bottom, which I didn't address because it's talking about Romans chapter 4, and Abraham is brought up. Anybody that argues the concept of baptism, they always go to Romans chapter 4 and say, when was Abraham justified? Was it before he was circumcised or after he was circumcised? Anybody know? Before. Abraham was justified before he was circumcised. Okay? So if he was justified before he was circumcised, why wouldn't I be justified before I'm baptized? The context of Romans chapter 4 is physical circumcision will not bring you salvation. And that it's the entire argument that Paul is making about Abraham to the Jews. And in Galatians, he even says, um, he says that God saw in advance that he would announce the gospel to Abraham. And the gospel is that it, it is through faith. And if you look at Colossians chapter 2, it says, raised with him through your faith in the power of God. So it is my faith in God's power, not my faith in physical circumcision. So I have in my notes here, I think to summarize what you're saying, circumcision of the flesh, physical, physical circumcision of the flesh equals spiritual circumcision of the heart. Yes. What people struggle with is they try and take circumcision of the flesh physical and equate it to baptism physical, and that's not, they're not equal. It is at baptism that the, that the heart is circumcised. It is at baptism that the heart is circumcised. God used the physical in the Old Testament, physical circumcision of the flesh, to parallel the requirement of the spiritual circumcision of the heart. And that happens at baptism. Does that make sense? If you baptize somebody who is not saved, this, is, this may cut our congregation down in half here, brother, but, but I'm going I'm to tell, tell, tell you what I believe. I believe the Bible teaches that baptism saves you. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. says, This baptism now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There, in our baptism, in Romans chapter 6 and 1 Peter chapter 3, when the Bible says we are buried with Jesus through baptism and we're in that grave of water, that is the point in when we join with Jesus in that grave. And you see that if you study Romans 6, and this is the assumption, this is the assumption 
that it's referring to water baptism, okay? I'm, I believe that most of the time in the New Testament it's talking about water baptism, that God uses this simple process of, of water when he immerses somebody into Christ. When he immerses someone in the water, they are actually buried with Jesus in the water and raised with him through their faith, and they're raised with Jesus. What's that? That's a tough question because I look at Acts chapter 2 and there are 3,000 people that were baptized that day and they heard one message. And it was about a minute, 45 minutes long as Peter began to speak. Um, we, what, what is written is about a minute, 45 seconds, and I read fast, so I tried to slow it down when I read it. But it's, about, it's, it's under two minutes that Peter is talking about David and he's talking about Jesus and he says, and God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So Paul or Peter is talking to the nation of Israel on the day of Pentecost and he explains to them who Jesus is and they say, brothers, what shall we do? And they, he says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he promises them a couple of things that happen when they repent and be baptized. That word and is a coordinating conjunction. It links two things. So he says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Did they have the baptismal... Uh, study that a lot of churches have. Um, if you guys have to leave, I'm not going to consider it rude. I know everybody has schedules, but I'm going to keep going while questions are coming. So, uh, and I, it doesn't matter the time. It's elk, elk aren't going to start moving around until 4 o'clock, and it takes me an hour to get there. So we're, we're good. So um, there was very limited knowledge, at least what's written. There's very limited knowledge. So do I believe people need to understand it? I think if you look at the biblical seven examples we have in the New Testament, it is a believer's baptism. And I think... Yeah, so Romans, Romans 10, um, is a, I, to me it's a pretty powerful passage that, that talks a little bit about that. And he says, how can they call on the one they have not believed in and how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So I believe that, the, that God uses us to be the conduit for truth. And I also believe that the power, the power is in the gospel. And so do I think that someone can have a very limited understanding of baptism and submit to baptism into Christ? Absolutely. Absolutely, because it, um, it says, in one point, Peter says, you know, uh, that we need to crave, crave pure spiritual milk so that it can grow up in it in our salvation. We're not all going to have this wonderful, amazing knowledge of the scriptures when we give our lives to Jesus. And the power of someone saying, wow, I need to give my life to Jesus is found, it says, for in the gospel, in the good news, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith. The righteous will live by faith. So in the gospel message of Jesus, somewhere in that gospel message, there's the message of what must I do to be saved? What must I do to respond to the offer that Jesus gives me because of his death on the cross? And I, I, I think that that is...
For it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved, and it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. Yeah. Um, Romans 10, 9, and 10. Um, John 3, 16. Um, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Uh, Acts 16. There's about four or five scriptures that are used on a very regular basis to counter the concept of baptism's role in God's plan. Um, and I have a very... Uh, pretty strong understanding of what Paul is referring here to when he says, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. I always reference Acts 19 when they had been baptized by John and then they come to Paul and they say to Paul, um, and Paul says to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Not when you were baptized, not when you heard, not when you confessed, not when you had faith, but he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they says, we didn't know there was a Holy Spirit. And so Paul's response was, then what baptism did you receive? And he says, oh, we received John's baptism. He goes, oh, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told you to believe in the one coming after him that is in Jesus. And so the concept of belief for, for most of us in our vernacular today is a mental recognition uh, of something. I, I believe that he exists, therefore I'm saved. And I, I think the term belief and believe needs to be more biblical when it says, you know, um, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, when you had this mental recognition? No, we didn't know there was one. Well, then what baptism did you receive? Paul's initial response was, to whom were you baptized? What baptism did you receive if you didn't receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And so it's kind of like when I say there's a ba the World Series is on and we're going to play a baseball game. Um, when you hear baseball, it's a good analogy all it's used one time. You think of baseball, you think of a glove, a ball, a bat, bases, uniforms, ball caps, all that good stuff. So when I hear believe, I hear a lot. I don't hear a mental understanding because it even says that even the demons believe there is one God and they shudder. So belief is much more than just a mental recognition. And this idea of confessing with your mouth, um, this idea of confess, you know, Paul, uh, that also is, that word means acknowledgement is all, and so Paul, Paul was seeking out Christians who were uh, calling on the name of the Lord. I have a hard time believing that this was in Acts 9, I think, or I think Acts 9, it says he was, they were looking, he was looking for people calling on the name of the Lord so that he could give them prison sentences. And I don't think Paul was looking for someone saying, Lord Jesus, like a confession. And that's where the sinner's prayer comes from in Romans 10, 9, and 10 is that this confession of who Jesus is, is a salvation prayer. And that's, that's the only place in all of Scripture that I can actually find a prayer or something that can be deduced as a prayer of salvation, is Romans 10, 9, and 10. So I think confessing um, in Matthew, I believe it's Matthew 10. Uh, in Matthew 10, it says that... Uh, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever does not acknowledge me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. There's this concept of a lifestyle. Marsh, there, there, Marsh, there's this concept of like we're, we're acknowledging and confessing Jesus through a lifestyle. It's not a one-time event. And I don't think Paul's talking about like a one-time event in Romans 10, 9, 10. That's just my, my take on it. And I base that off of other... Trying to, trying to blend all the scriptures together. You know, how do you blend baptism and confession and faith and hearing and belief? 
How do you put all those together? I'm happy to go over it more with you too, just some thoughts uh, anytime. Okay. Nothing else right now? <laughs> okay. Hey, I know that's a heavy sermon. I get it. I'm not foolish. And I'm not wild at tongue. Uh, I know it's a heavy sermon. I know it challenges thoughts that people have had their entire life. But if you're looking for a type of message that gives you the warm and fuzzies every Sunday, I just, it's not, in, it's not who I am. I don't have it in me. I just can't do it. I've got to preach what I feel God's telling me to preach. And I've got to go to the scriptures. And that's what I have to do. And that's what I'm going to do. So, um, but know from the depths of my heart, every soul in this room I love. I understand what God means, you know, by love your brothers, and I, I love you guys. Genuinely, I care about you as human beings, and my goal is to just share the scriptures as I believe they're taught, and one day I'm going to have to stand before the Father and, and give an account. I'm going to have to, because it says in, it says in, uh, in First Peter that I'm speaking the very words of God, the very oracles of God. And that's a heavy sentence. It really is. And it's an important one. But uh, I'll never be above reproach uh, as far as coming to me and saying, I don't agree with you. I don't think you're right. Um, and I'll never be above saying, let's study it out and see what God really says about it. I just want to do right by the king. So uh, we're barely at an hour. But don't, don't put the time on this one, Kyle, when you upload it, okay? Who has communion this morning? Ephraim?